Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 24, The Concordat of 1801 and the Quasi-War. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope we enjoyed our last episode on the Battle of Marengo, the battle that essentially confirmed Napoleon's place in power and gave him the validation he needed to stay there. This week, however, we're going to be taking a step back from the wars and the campaigns to discuss one of the more important domestic policy decisions of Napoleon's early rule as First Consul, as well as his role in ending a mini-war, some might call it a quasi-war, thousands of miles away to help shore up his interests across the Atlantic Ocean. So as we prepare to enter into Passover and Easter weekend, happy Passover and happy Easter to everyone, by the way, let's talk about Napoleon's role in ending one of the biggest wounds left open from the Revolution, making peace with the Catholic Church and continuing to ensure religious equality. When we finished off last week with Napoleon leaving the battlefield of Marengo to return to Paris on urgent business, he was hoping to utilize his recent victory at Marengo to further endear himself with a population that was, up to that point, still a little skeptical about Napoleon as their de facto dictator. He arrived in Paris on July 2nd, 1800 unexpectedly, and parades were then held on the 14th to celebrate the victory, harkening back to the days of the Roman triumphs down the city streets. The celebrations were put together so quickly that many in the Consular Guard, who arrived only days after Napoleon did, could not even sequester new uniforms and had to march down the Champ de Mans in blood-stained uniforms, shocking many citizens who had never seen the horrors of war so close to home. But these horrors would come to define the next 15 years, due largely in part to the man that they were there celebrating. Irony, of course. But they didn't know that at the time, and Napoleon, for all of his military prowess, was certain that the peace terms based on Campo Formio would be agreed to by Austria shortly. For all he knew at that moment, his parades was one that he hoped would solidify himself atop France's government for the foreseeable future, hopefully as a peacetime ruler. So while we know that negotiations would eventually break down and wouldn't be solidified until after Hohenlinden, spoiler alert, that battle is going to be a supplemental next week while I'm on vacation, Napoleon began to do what he had to do as the de facto head of government, begin his rule, at home. Now, as I've mentioned, the wounds that were created by the separation of church and state following the start of the French Revolution were still very much a contentious issue in French society, obviously out in the provinces, but there was still a considerable population of conservative Catholics that lived in and around Paris. If Napoleon wanted to avoid any royalist sympathies bubbling back up again after Brumaire, he was well aware that making peace with the Catholic Church and bringing them back into the fold would be a massive coup pun not intended, but, you know, obviously intended, for the French consulate. Now, Napoleon also had to contend with the more liberal and radical factions that had grown accustomed to not having the church's influence around. You see, Napoleon was well aware that should any eventual settlement be reached with the Catholic Church, that property previously owned by the church, which was now owned by private landowners, would need to stay that way. Tithes and parish taxes had been done away with with the revolution, and Napoleon was well aware as well that any return to those days would be massively unpopular amongst the Parisian artisan middle classes. So in short, 
Napoleon needed to strike the perfect balance between bringing the church back into the French society without having it return back to the powerful force it was during the Ancien Regime. Now, Napoleon's relationship with the Catholic Church, both prior to and during his reign, was always mercurial. And we've alluded to that a few times by now, but let's dive a little bit deeper now that, you know, it is going to be the main subject of our episode today. He lauded its structure, discipline, and importance in maintaining social order. But he also knew that given the power dynamic within the church itself, it was, in essence, a state that had geopolitical ambitions that he needed to contend with since Catholicism had been, and to be frank, still was, a major political force throughout the European ruling elite, especially amongst many of France's chief rivals. Thus, Napoleon had much to benefit in bringing them back to his side, since it would signal to many of the other European powers that the church could be compliant with the post-revolutionary France, if not totally compatible. And you see, the thing was, reconciliation with the church was a major policy issue that Napoleon had wanted to tackle even before taking power. During his first Italian campaign, Napoleon had written much about how much he respected the Pope's ability to organize resistance to French invasions in Italy, telling the Directory, quote, it was a great mistake to quarrel with that power. Napoleon understood that in being able to make allies with neighboring nations, especially in Italy, reconciliation with the Catholic Church was paramount, if, you know, for no other reason than to not provide them additional motivation to resist French occupation. Even as recently as the week before Marengo, Napoleon vowed to, quote, remove all obstacles in the way of a complete reconciliation between France and the head of the church. Now, while on the surface this all sounds good and noble, if we're being completely honest here, Napoleon's biggest reason for wanting to bring the Catholic Church back into the fold was because he knew how much of a boon it would be to his personal rule back home. Now, we just touched on Napoleon's personal relationship with the Catholic Church, but with regards to his personal beliefs, especially as it pertained to religion overall, it was less a matter of faith in God and more of a, quote, how can I use God to benefit me mentality. I think if we were to classify Napoleon's religion, it would have likely been what we now call deism. That is, he believed in God, or a creator, he respected the societal aspect of religion and believed in its importance, as we'll get to in a second, and he believed in the immortality of the soul, something which would, would often fill his mind while he was stuck in perpetual boredom on St. Helena. But his views on religion, as with many people, changed and wavered throughout his life. And we mentioned back in the Egyptian campaign how he sympathized with Islam in order to endear himself to the local imams, and that became a regular theme in the constant power dynamic between religion and government in the early 19th century. You see, the church, after centuries as the leading social and political force, was now becoming heavily subservient to the state, even beyond France. But Napoleon did the same with a lot of religions, certainly the Jews, essentially stating in Egypt that, quote, if I ruled the people of Jews, I would rebuild the Temple of Solomon. If it fit the agenda, you can believe that Napoleon would overture. And this is important, because regardless of Napoleon's own religious views, and however much they changed throughout his life, there is no doubting how important religious was to Napoleon when it came to the social order. He said just as much when speaking with Roderer, who would be one of his principal negotiators between France and the Catholic Church. Quote, In religion, I do not see the mystery of the incarnation, but the mystery of the social order. It associates with heaven an idea of equality that keeps rich men from being massacred by the poor. Society is impossible without inequality. Inequality intolerable without a code of immorality and a code of morality unacceptable without religion. Going further, and in more direct terms, he famously said, quote, The idea of God is very useful to maintain good order, 
to keep men in the path of virtue and to keep them from crime. So with the vast majority of French citizens living out in about 36,000 small towns and hamlets, that is, they were poor conservative rustics, and not in the main cities, to maintain that order, Napoleon went off to the negotiating table. Now to the men with whom Napoleon would be negotiating with. If you remember back to the Italian campaign episodes, you'll remember that at the time, Napoleon was dealing with stalwart conservative Pope Pius VI. Pope Pius VI died in August of 1799, mere months before Napoleon was to take power, and he was replaced by Pope Pius VII. Born Barnaba Nicolo Maria Luigi Chiaramanti, Pius VII was far more moderate than his predecessor. Aged only 57 when he took the seat as the Bishop of Rome, he had grown up in the Enlightenment era, and thus was not overtly hostile to the French Revolution, and it was for this reason that much of his early reign was spent dealing with the French question generally, and Napoleon Bonaparte specifically. In Pius VII, Napoleon saw in a man he could work with in terms of compromise, and it's likely Pius VII thought the same of Bonaparte. Napoleon knew that negotiations would be tense and consensus difficult, especially after nearly a decade of excommunication, as well as religious outlawing. But he knew that the grand prize of winning over the church was well worth the fight. And he also knew how much damage it could potentially inflict on his enemies from a political standpoint. So much like his actual battles, he dug in for a fight and began his overtures. Now as for the other main players in the negotiations, they went as follows. For the French, Napoleon's brother, Joseph, the Vendean leader, Etienne Alessandre Bonnier, and Emmanuel Criette, who was a counselor of state. On the Vatican side, Secretary of State Cardinal Ercoli Consalvi, the Papal Legate Cardinal Giovanni Caprara, and Pius's theological advisor Charles Caselli. Now, if you noticed, none of the negotiators were French Catholic priests, who were, honestly, the main subjects at issue here. You see, while religious toleration was all but agreed to, a major sticking point for Rome was the oaths the priests still needed to take back in France. Indeed, the French clergy, well, those that remained anyway, were split amongst those who had taken the oath and those who had not. Thus, the negotiations dragged on, in total secrecy from the Concile d'État, by the way, and nearly 1,300 documents were sent back and forth over the course of the next 12 months until all the points were agreed upon. Over 10 drafts were written before the final one was agreed to in July of 1801, which is now known to history as the Concordat of 1801. Now, while official after signing, the Concordat was not published and ratified until early 1802 due to the staunch opposition it raised in the French Senate as well as the French army. But Napoleon, as he was so famed at doing, was able to quell the unrest by reassuring those in opposition that the agreement was very favorable to the state, and he was correct in this assessment. You see, the Concordat of 1801 did restore ties to the papacy for the French, but these ties were largely subservient to the French state. The French government held more power over the church within France than previous pre-revolutionary regimes had held, and the lands which were seized during the French Revolution, as we mentioned earlier, were not returned. Now, the rest of the terms went as follows. Point one. The declaration that Catholicism was the religion of the great majority of the French, but not the official state religion. Now, this was important as it gave religious freedom to the large minority of Protestants and Jews in France, especially after the amendments made in the Organic Articles in 1802, and we will get to those in just a minute. Point two, the French government would still nominate priests and the Pope would confirm them. Point three, 
The state would require priests to continue their oath of allegiance, but the state would agree to pay clerical salaries. And point four, Sunday would be reestablished as a festival day, effective Easter Sunday, April 18th, 1802. Now, the French Republican calendar would remain in place until 1806, after which it would be replaced by the Gregorian calendar, but we will get to that a little later down the road. In all, Napoleon's agreement with the Catholic Church had the intended effect he'd hoped for. Over 10,000 priests would return from exile, and many in the provinces celebrated the news that they had been waiting for for over a decade. Many in the church even went so far as to declare Napoleon the, quote, restorer of religion, or even God himself. More importantly, though, it helped heal the deep wound that had been open for the previous 12 years, and it helped to quell any further resistance out in the provinces. Quote, Children listen with more docility to the voice of their parents, Napoleon would later state. Youth is more submissive to the authority of the magistrate, and the conscription is now effected in places where its very name used to arouse resistance. In short, it was the domestic political victory that Napoleon needed to help consolidate his popularity outside of Paris. And it would be long-lasting. The Concordat would remain legally binding until 1905 throughout France, and it is still legally binding in Alsace-Lorraine. It's been cited as one of Napoleon's most popular policy moves during his reign as first consul, and it signaled in a new era for relations between France and Rome. And after all, one less enemy to worry about means more time and resources to concentrate on those who pose a larger threat. But more on that next week. Now, with that said, let's discuss the later addition to the Concordat of 1801, which gets a little less attention, but is still relatively important, and that's what I mentioned briefly earlier, the organic articles. Now, these articles were presented by Napoleon as 77 documents relating to Catholicism and an additional 44 relating to Protestantism. They were added shortly after the Concordat was published in spring of 1802, and they were presented as further clarification with regards to public worship in France, specifically with regards to freedom of religion between Catholics and Protestants. But this would also extend out to the 55,000 or so Jews who were living in France at the time. The true reasoning behind the addition of these articles, as always though, was far more nuanced. With the Concord of 1801, Napoleon achieved a massive political victory in securing the resurrections of relations between France and the Catholic Church. <laughs> Did we catch that pun? But there was still concern over tensions between other religions. You see, Napoleon wanted to give the French consulate the ability to further curtail any potential uprisings should these tensions boil over, particularly in cities and towns with mixed populations. So, in essence, it was an amendment that allowed for the French government to help prevent any religious strife in these cities, something which would have severely hampered Napoleon's larger international ambitions. An example was Article 45, which states, quote, In cities where there are temples dedicated to different religions, no religious ceremony is to take place outside of the building consecrated for Catholic worship. Where there were towns with different religions, public processions were prohibited in order to prevent rioting. Now, the organic articles naturally infuriated the Catholic Church, especially Pope Pius VII, who was now beginning his path down the I shouldn't have negotiated with Napoleon course. But conversely, they were celebrated amongst a large Protestant minority who saw the articles as preventing Catholic domination in the country, something which many of them had experienced prior to the start of the French Revolution. A few years later, in 1804, Protestant ministers were, similarly to Catholic priests, salaried by the state and given the same rights as their Catholic counterparts. 
And as we mentioned, this laid the groundwork for the relative Jewish toleration that is so often associated with Napoleon, something which we will discuss at length in a few episodes because as Napoleon began his conquest throughout Europe, his empire was about to come into contact with large Jewish minorities, and he was quite keen on bringing them into the fold of French assimilation. That is to say, bringing them on as powerful allies in order to gain support in said conquered countries. But while the articles were naturally popular with the religious minorities of France, they were seen as traitorous to French Catholics, believing them to be a slap in the face after the victory that they had scored with the conquered out of 1801. Going back to Pius, he protested them vehemently, believing them to be nothing more than a further attempt by Napoleon to gain more power over the Catholic Church, but his contentions were in vain. And this also proved to be a major political embarrassment for Pius, who was seen by many as subservient to Napoleon, having been outwitted by the young consul nearly half of his age. But more importantly for Napoleon was that it did infuriate many of the Catholic generals under his command, who believed that it would provide more room for Protestant influence in the French military and government. In the end, however, the organic articles would become something of a dead letter, which is likely why they're seldom spoken about today when compared to the Concordat. Many of the articles were so obscure that they essentially became irrelevant and there was little reason to enforce them. So why bring them up? Well, because, again, they laid the groundwork for what much of Napoleon's domestic contributions became known for, religious toleration in a majority Catholic country in a Europe that was extremely anti-Semitic. It also further validated Napoleon's power when it came to the relationship between France and the Catholic Church a relationship which would be critical over the next 15 years. So with that said, we're going to leave Napoleon and the Catholic Church here for now, but we will be returning to the theme of religion quite a bit over the rest of our series because it is inevitably intertwined with what we will be talking about. I mean, really, most of the countries that Napoleon fought with thought that these wars were a fight of good versus evil. God versus the devil, heaven versus hell. But with this said, the importance of these negotiations and agreements cannot be overstated. The Concordat of 1801 would prove to be one of the most important domestic legislative decisions of Napoleon's reign, and one which was greatly needed. Okay, so with that said, let's switch gears completely to another interesting relationship that is seldom discussed when it comes to Napoleon, and that is the relationship between Napoleon and the newly formed United States of America. Now, while most American high school students can probably tell you that it was Napoleon who sold the Louisiana Territory to the United States in 1803, known as the Louisiana Purchase under Thomas Jefferson, far fewer can probably tell you about his role that he played in ending one of the first wars that the U.S. fought as a sovereign nation, the Quasi-War. Now look, we don't have the time to get too distracted with the entirety of the Quasi-War. So here's a quick recap up to Napoleon's consolidation of power in mid-1800 to get us up to speed. After that whole American Revolution thing, France began demanding repayments of their assistance during the war, which helped the Americans secure their independence. Now we know that this massive debt incurred by the French during the American Revolutionary War was a large reason for why the French Revolution got going in earnest. But what we're often not taught is that the Americans were in fact paying some of those loans back, just not at the rate necessary to help with France's failing finances. What really sparked the tensions, though, was that in 1793, the U.S. Congress voted to suspend the repayment of French loans, which infuriated the French government. 
Now, additional disputes over the 1778 Treaties of Alliance and Commerce between the two countries were inflamed when the U.S. and Great Britain signed the 1794 Jay Treaty, which normalized trade between the two countries and tied up loose ends created by the 1783 Treaty of Paris, which formally ended the American Revolutionary War. France saw the Jay Treaty as incompatible with the Alliance and Commerce Treaties since France was at war with Great Britain in the War of the First Coalition, and thus the French began to seize American ships that were trading with Britain. Now, although both sides tried to resolve the dispute diplomatically, they were unable to come to an agreement, and French privateers began seizing U.S. ships in the Caribbean, Atlantic, and in U.S. territorial waters, regardless of nationality. Now, while today this would obviously have been met with a thorough response from the United States Navy, in the 1790s, much of the U.S. military had been disbanded following the American Revolution, and thus they were unable to mount an appropriate response. In fact, by the time Napoleon had seized power in the coup of 18 Brumaire, nearly 400 American ships had been seized by the French. It would not be until 1798 that the U.S. Congress reassembled the U.S. Navy, and in July of that year, authorized the use of force against the French, beginning what we now call the Quasi-War. And so by 1800, American losses had been greatly reduced due to their growing navy and with assistance from the British, and with the French, dealing with wars in Italy, Germany, the Atlantic, and with the slave revolt in Haiti, decided to take a more conciliatory approach with regards to the United States. Now this was in large part because the Quasi-War was proving to greatly affect the merchant class that largely supported Napoleon, another ally he didn't want to alienate because, you know, money and who wanted to reestablish trade monopolies in the Caribbean, especially since their most lucrative one, Saint-Domingue, that is Haiti, was currently up in flames. Now, we will get to the Haitian Revolution in the next few episodes. Trust me, I am dying to get there. And we will dive headlong into the complex web of tension, perhaps the most underrated bleeding ulcer of Napoleon's time in power. But for right now, both sides, that is the United States and France, approached each other to begin negotiations for peace, as this war was proving too costly for both of them. Now, the biggest sticking point for the French was that the U.S. had demanded about $20 million in compensation for shipping losses. But the new French government, that is, the consulate, argued that any actions taken by the directory were null and void, and that the only agreements still legally binding were those from the 1778 treaties. Now, Talleyrand, remember him, preferred an amicable relationship with the United States and as he just so happened to be reinstalled as foreign minister, decided that it would be best to not enforce those treaties. He knew, as Napoleon did, that a neutral America would be crucial for French interests in the Americas, especially since Spain was just about to cede what would eventually become the Louisiana Purchase to France in October of 1800, something which we will get to next week. Thus, in September of 1800, both sides held the Convention of 1800, formerly known as the Treaty of Mortefontaine, which confirmed the terminations of the 1778 treaties, confirmed the principles of free trade, free goods between both nations, and ended the Quasi-War. The delegations featured notable names such as Joseph Bonaparte, Pierre-Louis Roderer, and Oliver Ellsworth on the American side. Now, as a side note from the American perspective, of course, I am from the U.S., so I figured I would throw this in here, the Quasi-War is hardly mentioned in most U.S. history classes today, with the early 19th century usually glossed over up to the Industrial Revolution and Manifest Destiny. But the war actually holds significance for some recent events. The idea that the U.S. Congress can authorize the use of military force without a formal declaration of war, which would later be confirmed by the Supreme Court, 
and that created the basis for many of America's future wars in similar fashion, namely the Vietnam War, and more recently, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. This, in turn, opened a whole new Pandora's box on how to adequately define American militarism as it pertained to the 19th and early 20th centuries, something which would grow increasingly complicated as we get into the modern era. Now, similarly, the Convention of 1800, which ended the quasi-war officially, is seldom talked about in most historical circles, let alone ones specific to Napoleon. But it was an important step in normalizing Franco-American relations at a time when tensions were at all-time highs throughout Europe and the Atlantic. It also laid the groundwork for what Napoleon had hoped to accomplish on the continent in the coming years, and would eventually lead to, as we alluded to earlier, the Louisiana Purchase. But before Napoleon had time to get these ambitions into gear, he was still facing doubters back at home, and they would stop at nothing to neutralize him from the stage of power. So next week, we're going to finish up 1800 by talking about some of the plots to assassinate the young First Consul as he gets ready to end the War of the Second Coalition and give Europe something it hadn't seen in a decade. And that was peace. <laughs>